My father is, was one of the world's most interesting men. He was curious and very hard worker and very intelligent. And he was also a dictator and a harsh disciplinarian. And he constantly told my mom to to be quiet and to hold her tongue. And I just got sick of him telling her to hold her tongue and just berating her over the slightest thing. And I realized it was up to me to do something about it. And I was 12 years old, and I knew that the only thing he would listen to, he certainly wasn't going to listen to a child correcting him, but he would listen to the Jehovah's Witness literature. And they had a book, which is still one of the bestsellers ever, called The Truth That Leads to Eternal Life. And it had a chapter in there about how to build a happy family life. And it had a paragraph or two about how you should treat your wife. And so I, I went down and said, Dad, can I read something to you? And he said, you know, what is it? And I just started reading. And I was crying because I was we were afraid of my dad. He was in a recliner and he just jumped up out of the chair and he said, I know that book better than anybody. And I just started crying and I peed my pants. I was so afraid of him and ran away. And then about 15 minutes went by and he said, Cher, come back down here. And then he said, can you read to me what you were going to read to me? And he sat very quietly and listened while I read those two paragraphs to him. It was just so quiet. And I waited for permission to leave. And he finally said, thank you. And then he said, you're the smartest young and I got. I'm Sherry Stewart Deutschman, the founder of Letter Logic. From the Chase Studio at the Nashville Entrepreneur Center, this is Circle Back, where we trace the life cycle of the startup from bright idea to big payoff. I'm your host, Clark Buckner. So I was raised in a mountain town, Banner Elk, North Carolina, which is a ski resort area that has uh, very wealthy people coming through and lots of very poor people. My family are all Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses don't really encourage an education beyond high school, so guess what? I have only a high school education because of that. I'm right in the middle. There are three older than me and three younger than me. So that middle child syndrome, which um, is you're largely not ignored, but there's just not a lot of focus on you. And so I think I benefited from that. I could escape the house for hours and go climb up the mountain across from my home and stare back at the house and see what was going on there and felt different and an other. My dad is an entrepreneur. 
He made a lot of money through the years, lost a lot of money. His money enabled him to build the Kingdom Halls, which he did for free. And it enabled him to employ lots of the witnesses who depended on him for a job. So my dad was my example in that way. If you've never known a Jehovah's Witness, think again. Prince, Michael Jackson, our 35th president, Dwight Eisenhower, were all members of the faith. You may have encountered a Jehovah's Witness at your own doorstep. Every witness, as soon as you can walk, you become what they call a publisher, which means you walk door to door to publish the good news. And so publishers were required to spend at least 10 hours a month doing that. They believe that method of making disciples is the model Jesus gave the church. And all through my childhood, I probably did it 20 to 30 hours a month. And then when I graduated from high school at 17, I did it full time. I did it 90 hours a month. I got married at 18 because most witnesses don't allow dating unless you are ready to get married. And so you date to find a partner. My first kiss was when they said, you may kiss the bride. Because there's not the dating and courtship process, I didn't realize that he was an alcoholic. I was raised in a world where women are are to be quiet and um, not to be vocal and not to complain, and so I didn't. And then the physical abuse just got too bad. And the day I left him finally was just, he just uh, hit my china cabinet with a hatchet and had broken the glass and everything in the cabinet. And I live really close to the road um, going up Beach Mountain, North Carolina. And it was snowing, and all the skiers are heading up the mountain to get some fresh snow. And I barefooted to grab my daughter and ran out into the street and flagged down a car and had them take me to the police station. But it took a long time for me to get the courage to realize that it was not, it was a terribly unhealthy environment to graze my daughter in the violence that she was seeing, and that it came to the point where I thought she was going to get hurt. Divorced and effectively disowned. I was disfellowshipped as a Jehovah's Witness at the time, so Jehovah's Witnesses were not allowed to speak to me, including my family members. Sherry was a single mother in a strange city at 23. Well, I made the, you know, the brash decision to move to Nashville. And my dad is the one who drove the U-Haul out here with all my stuff. And uh, we moved into a third-floor apartment in Donaldson. And it was my dad and I that carried up every stick of furniture I owned into that apartment. With no resume or skills to speak of, Sherry tapped into her door-to-door experience. So I, I went into Beeman Lincoln Mercury and uh, met with the general manager who you know, said, your timing's pretty good. We, 
we don't have any women and we think it's a good time to have a woman. So tell me, you know, what do you know about cars? And I said, uh, yeah, nothing. And he said, well, what do you drive? And I pointed out the window to Jezebel, my ugly car, and he just shook his head. And he was just a look of disgust. And he said, listen, this is such a tough business. There's long hours and tons of rejection. How do I know you can handle rejection? And I said, because I was raised as a Jehovah's Witness knocking on doors since I was about nine years old. And he, he just burst out laughing and he said, okay, you got the job on one condition. Never park that piece of shit car on this lot again. Yes, sir. So even though you were supposed to sell six cars before you could get your free demo, your free brand new shiny car to drive, after a week there, he said, I can't take it anymore. Go get yourself a demo. And I got a a purple Mercury Lynx car to drive. I was so proud of that ugly car. (laughs) Her baptism at Beeman into the working class would offer an indelible lesson. So the, the first couple of years I was in Nashville, um, I d- didn't have health insurance. I didn't have a credit card. I had no extra money ever. And so my daughter and I we were fine until we weren't. Um, she cut her foot on the playground, and it was a pretty good gash. I cleaned it as best I knew how and watched it daily and cleaned and redressed it daily, and it just kept getting worse and worse. And so I was too proud to go to my parents, you know, to call them and say, I need money. So I just took her to the emergency room, finally. And uh, the doctor there told me that if I had waited even a day longer, she could have lost her leg or her life because um, that wound had a serious staph infection. And so I I think that's important because it informed the empathetic leader I was to become later. Selling cars led to other commission jobs at waste management and at a printing company. National Business Products. The owner of that business, Stephen Prince, owned a traditional printing company but he had determined that he could get hospitals to send their data to us electronically and that we would then parse the data and print and mail the bills for them. So it took me a while to get the first hospital to say yes because they were doing that themselves. And then as soon as I got the first hospital to say yes, it was like Katie bar the door. Every hospital that I approached said yes. So that's when I really started making good money. The company did well. Stephen had five different companies, and I was heading up this one. And then he sold that business um, to some local private equity guys, and I went with them. I was one of those employees, I consider myself an ideal employee. I didn't just go to work and punch in and punch out. I was a straight commission sales rep, But I'm the one who, I laid all the tile in their IT department. On the weekends and nights, I'm the one who cleaned up the parking lot. I'd pulled the weeds. I scrubbed the bathrooms. I did everything to keep that company running. When an exhausted IT employee abruptly left, 
taking all the code and tech design with him, things went south. It's a difficult business. I mean, it looks very simple, but there's a million little things that can go wrong. And all of those little things started going wrong. Truthfully, most of my time was spent fielding angry calls from customers. And um, I just became a professional apologist. And then about that time, I read Herb Kelleher's book. Nuts! Exclamation point. Southwest Airlines' crazy recipe for business and personal success. He's not the writer, but it's about him and about how he started Southwest Airlines with his belief that if you take great care of the employees, they will be happy and they will take great care of the customer and the customer will be loyal and the customer will take care of the shareholders. Herb Kelleher would turn down invitations to meet with the governor, to meet with people in Washington, to meet with important people whenever he had an employee event that conflicted. And that was just an epiphany for me. And so I ran to my bosses to say, oh my gosh, all these problems that we're having, I think if we could fix the employee morale and the lack of engagement, that we could fix our problems. And my boss, knowing that I and I have only high school education and that I was naive, perhaps, just patted my hand and said, you don't know anything about business. And uh, you just go back out and sell something. And it was really demoralizing. And so um, I just quit. I didn't have a voice that I, I didn't matter enough to have a serious audience to say, let me hear you out and talk to you about why you feel the way you feel. Sherry was told to hold her tongue, and suddenly it felt like she was back in that den with her dad. She realized it was up to her to do something about it. If I, the person responsible for all the revenue coming into the building, was dismissed so easily, how might those people down running those machines feel? And how dismissed and uncared for might they feel? I had a week-long yard sale and uh, cashed in my 401k and just sold everything that I had, so I had to go to Goodwill to buy a couple of file cabinets. The little short file cabinets, I pulled an old door over them and that became my desk. And I had a whiteboard and a landline <laughs> and an old computer that my previous bosses had let me have because it was so ancient they didn't care about it. And I started competing with them. What I did, which was brilliant, was go to all of the hospitals, my new prospective new clients, and asked them to pay up front to give me a, a deposit on our services. First, I asked for a month deposit, and then later I went back and said I needed a two-month deposit. Nobody batted an eye. And so that's how I cash flowed the company. Her company would come to be known as Letter Logic. The fortune came from printing and mailing hospital billing statements. The nationwide praise and notoriety came from a culture of caring. My goal was always to build a great company and to build a great company by seeing that every employee 
was just as engaged and just as dedicated as I was. Because she herself had been underestimated, Sherry kept her eyes open for talent and recognized it. One of the companies that we outsourced work to had a man there who had only an eighth grade education, but he wrote all the code there. He was a genius IT man. And he saw the work that another company in town was doing for us. And it would take them sometimes six weeks to write an interface for me. And so I would get a contract and it would be at least, you know, six to eight weeks before I could get revenue from this new client. And so this young man there said, I can do those interfaces. And my thought was, sure you can. And he said, just give me a file and let me do it. And the next day he had it done. Eighth grade education and absolutely brilliant. Brilliant. He wrote all the code for the whole platform for what became a $40 million company. There was unheard of profit sharing. Where every month I shared the financials with the employees. They got to see the P&L. And then I took the bottom line and distributed 10% of the bottom line, but distributed it evenly so that even our janitor got what I got and got what the CFO got. Incentives for home ownership. Helping them buy their first home with a, a gift toward the down payment of their first homes. If you needed a loan, no rip-off payday lenders. Letter Logic was there to help. They established a true living wage. The way we determined what a fair living wage was was to look at a what if. What if the two lowest paid employees in our company started dating and decided to get married and have a family? On what we pay them, on their joint wages, what part of town could they afford to live in? Is that a safe community? Could they afford to buy a house? Could they afford to save money for a vacation? And of course, health insurance. The day we opened our doors at LetterLogic, we paid for 100% of the medical, dental, disability, and life insurance for our employees. I started talking about the culture to the customers. So I would be sitting in their boardrooms presenting to these big healthcare systems, and I just started telling them, I need you to know about our culture because it's not normal, but we don't believe the customer comes first. And then they would be shocked, you know, like, did we hear what we heard? And then I would explain, we believe that if we put our employees first, they're going to be happy and well-focused on their work. And so when they're at work, they're taking great care of you, and you're going to love them, and you're going to get the best service you've ever had in your life. When we come back... Employee outreach, one lunch at a time. I want to take a quick moment and invite you to listen to one of our new shows, Twin Day. It's all about rethinking entrepreneurship. In Kiswahili, Twin Day means let's go. And it's our rally cry here at the EC for founders of color. This show shares the name with our statewide program dedicated to leveling the playing field for Black and Latinx founders. We'll bring in guests to engage in open and honest conversations with incredible Black and Latinx business experts, investors, and other successful founders located throughout Tennessee, 
and other parts of the United States. In each episode, you'll hear from successful founders and entrepreneurial innovators of color who take the time to circle back to share peaks and valleys of their journeys. We'll also illuminate the hurdles and opportunities that exist within the larger world of startups, venture capital, and business more broadly. Join us and get the latest updates at ec.co slash twindaypodcast. Now, back to the show. I think the biggest benefit that we had was not something that was about dollars or cents. It was about having a voice. And on Wednesdays, I was not Sherry, the CEO. On Wednesdays, I took on an alter ego, Lucy. So when was the last time you had lunch with the boss? Right, probably never. At Letter Logic, it wasn't something to fear. It was the CEO's chance to hear. It was lunch with Lucy at Letter Logic, and employees would sign up to have lunch with Lucy, and they would choose a restaurant, often restaurants in their home communities, and they would choose who they wanted to go to lunch with us. Most often it was just the two of us, but sometimes it was somebody they were dating or a spouse, or sometimes it was entire departments who wanted to have lunch with me, and then... We went to the restaurant of their choice, and we talked about what was on their mind, and I just listened to them. And they knew that I listened because I made changes based on what I'd heard. And I got to know so many things about the character and the hopes and dreams of the employees that I would not have known. And they were incredible human beings that I would not have known if I hadn't taken the time to have lunch with them. And that became, I say it over and over again, the most valuable time I spent running my company every week was Wednesday lunches. Um, I'd given money to all the employees when I sold the company based on tenure. And there was a young woman um, whose parents were Serbian refugees. In fact, she, she was born in Serbia and came here with them as a young child. And she was only about 26 years old and had been with us just a couple of years. But I gave her her gift. So I, I sold the company on Monday. And the next Monday was my last day with the people. And that week, I had met with each person, giving them a gift. And so just a few weeks out, she said, I want to have lunch with Lucy and tell her what I did with the money. She had taken her money, and she had saved up all of her profit share checks, too. And our profit share checks were getting bigger. They were over 1000 a month. And she had saved all that money, and gotten her big check at the end and went and paid off her parents' mortgage. And she said that um, she had overheard them talking about the need to help relatives in Serbia, but they couldn't because of the mortgage. And so she just eliminated that worry for them and said that 
it would never have occurred to her in her life to do that until she worked at at Letter Logic, where empathy was such a um, foundational to who we were. And that's like the proudest moment I had as an entrepreneur. We had several people that tried to buy the company that I built. They all bragged about our culture and how critical it was, and they loved our benefits, and they really, I think, blew a lot of smoke, (laughs) which I bought, and that they were going to keep those things in place, and they didn't. And so I think it was very short-sighted of them. The company that acquired my company did away with what made us most special was the culture. And a key to the culture was a profit-sharing plan that was the single best idea I've ever had in my life because it kept everybody so engaged and working together so tightly. And I think in their short-sightedness, this PE firm that bought us on the first day they owned the company, they did away with that profit-share And so when I left the company, there were 51 employees, and just about 90 days later, there were only 12 of those employees still there. The others left because the culture changed so dramatically. So these were highly trained, skilled, dedicated employees who left. I wish that I had vetted the buyers better. And yet I don't know how much more I could have done other than writing into the contract, you must do this, this, and this, which would have changed everything. I didn't expect them to keep every benefit in place. The role of private equity is simply to get a great return on investment for their investors. And it's not about the employees necessarily. I think I'm an empathetic capitalist. I believe that in many ways you can't do good unless you're doing well. To make money and share the wealth generously, which I try to do. Now you might be saying, come on, was every employee appreciative of this generosity? Did anyone take advantage? Here are some lessons learned. I have seen very few partnerships work. And the ones that do have very well-structured agreements about who's responsible for what, and everybody's got real skin in the game, and there is a hierarchy. The 50-50 things, I don't know how they can ever work, because somebody's got to make the ultimate decision and pull the trigger. So I strongly urge anybody who's thinking about a partnership to interview 10 people who've done it and um, challenge them to find the ones that work. And I think some of the biggest mistakes I made through the years, which I corrected later on, was holding on to subpar employees for too long. And then I learned to slow down the hiring process and then be really quick to fire. A woman that I fired, she'd only been with us a few months, and I'd given her a few warnings. And the day I fired her, she challenged me, and she was very defiantly saying, you can't fire me. And I said, why not? And she said, if you fire me, you aren't who you say you are. And I said, how so? 
And she said, you said that this is a people-first organization. And I said, yes, it's people-first. It's not person-first. Our employee loan program was put there just strictly for emergencies if you needed extra cash, and then all you had to do was come to us and we, we wrote you a check. It was very easy. As time went by, we saw that it was the same employees that were constantly needing that in that loan. And so we started, you could only have one a month, and then you had to have counseling. So we did it less and less, but it was always available to employees who needed money. A mistake that entrepreneurs often make is they think they've got this one thing licked and they can add these other product lines. And we were trying to add a product line that I thought was really complementary to us, trying to become a technology company. So all we did was print and mail bills. I could never really compete with those big tech companies and what they were doing without spending tens of millions of dollars more and losing our footing. And we were considered the very best in the industry on the paper side, and I just got us back to that. Let's not chase this other thing. Let's do what we were doing to begin with. It was very painful for me to stand up in front of the employees with that P&L two months in a row and say, there's no profit share check because I screwed up. Selling the company was a lot more emotional than I thought. I went back to visit a few times and and I couldn't even get past the lobby um, for crying. I thought that I would be invited to the company picnics and things, and I wasn't. That was, um, you know, it was very emotional for me. Uh, those people I love. Um, so that that was hard, and I, I think I had serious seller's remorse for a couple of years because there was kind of a loss of identity. I was, I was Lucy at Letter Logic, and I was just Sherry Deutschman again. And I've navigated that fine now, and I know it was the right time, and I'm, you know, happy with it now, but it was emotional for a while. There aren't many moguls with made-for-the-movies stories like Sherry's. How's this for an ending? She found the perfect compliment in a partner. So I met Mark when the company was about five years old, and so I think we were at $10 million in revenue when I met my husband, also an entrepreneur. And it's funny, if we had not been entrepreneurs, we would not be together. It was our courtship. So we would have dinner together and we would talk numbers. And we would talk about, you know, the, the respective margins. And he would talk about what he sold that day. And I would talk about what I sold. And then, and so it was very romantic, very sexy talking about, oh, the valuation of your company just increased a million and a half dollars today. And it's just true. And then we were very competitive. And so he was at a point in his life where he was going to slow down a little bit. And then he wanted to compete with me to see who could build the most valuable company. And so that's, that's what we did. And remember her dad who at times terrified her? I love my dad so much, and my relationship with him was so strong. It only got stronger through the years. And when he was dying, you know, he said, you're, you're the best friend I have. You're the only person that I can talk to honestly about my mistakes. And that was such a 
privilege and honor for my dad to be able to, you know, I became his confidant through the years. And he said, thank you. You're the smartest young and I got. I can hear that his voice is crystal clear today as I heard it then. Hey, thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe at ec.co slash circleback and follow, rate, and review the show anywhere you get your podcasts. Circleback is made possible by the generous support of the Beth and Randy Chase family. Also, a thank you to our media partner, the Nashville Post. Keep your pulse on all things Nashville business and more by subscribing to their newsletter at nashvillepost.com. And a shout out to our friends at Lightning 100 for supporting the show. A big thanks to our team from our creator and executive producer, Greg Allen, script writing by Demetria Kaladimos, and a big thank you to the rest of the EC staff. I'm Clark Buckner, and we'll see you soon on another episode of Circle Back. Circle Back.